Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's early August 1901, and a series of events in a far-off corner of the war would end up resonating internationally for the next 118 years. This involved the Bushveld Carboneers, the unit of irregular troops from Australia that was eventually disbanded. I covered part of this story in an earlier podcast, episode 72. Because most of these events happened in August 1901, and that's where we are in our podcast series, we must reconsider the story of Breaker Morant. The events that led to Morant and his partner in crime Hancock being involved in murders are still clouded in controversy. Very few stories resonate so continuously as this. We need to take a close look once more. This episode is going to be slightly longer than usual. By February 1901, a 320-man regiment had been formed by Australian Colonel Robert Lenihan, which was based in Petersburg, 180 miles north of Pretoria. It was called the Bushveld Carboneers. As I've described, the northern Transvaal area where they were based is largely low felt, extremely hot and dry, dusty in summer, warmer than the high felt where Pretoria is based. There's a slow descent from Pretoria to the low felt town of Petersburg, which is known as Polokwane today. It was also a slow descent into the madness of war for the Bushveld Carboneers and their officers, as we'll hear. By the summer of 1901, rumours had reached the officer commanding at Petersburg of poor discipline, unconfirmed murders, drunkenness and general lawlessness in the Spelonken. That was the name of the region, Spelonken, which itself has a discordant feel. Spelonken means caves in Dutch. The main example, unfortunately, of this indiscipline was rape. A local woman had accused British Army officer James Robertson, the officer commanding of the Bushville Carboneers A Squadron, of sexual assault. In response, Robertson was recalled to HQ and given an ultimatum. It was court-martial or resign his commission. He submitted his resignation and quit the British Army. Modern organisational planning includes what's known as the culture of organisations, and alas, the culture of the Bushville Carboneers was steeped in abuse. Former Kitchener Fighting Scout Lieutenant Percy Frederick Hunt was ordered to the Northern Transvaal and given the command of Bushville Carboneers B Squadron. Before leaving Petersburg in July 1901, the newly promoted Captain Hunt asked for a number of officers to be transferred with him to his new field of command. These officers were Lieutenants Morant, Hannam and Harry Picton. An emblematic moment, as we'll see. The Bushveld Carboneers were building a name for themselves in this region and it wasn't good. With Hunt, officer commanding, the detachment at Fort Edward and Spelonken, both Lieutenant Morant and Hancock began to reimpose discipline which had been lacking, but they went too far. In one incident, several members of the supply convoy commanded by Lieutenant Picton looted the rum they were carrying and drunk it. The drunkards then threatened to shoot Picton and he wanted them arrested for insubordination. These troops ran away before they could be arrested and eventually they were hunted down and dishonorably discharged. These men detested Morant and Hancock. Some say it was their instigation that led to allegations against the two, but that is disingenuous. At the end of July 1901, the garrison at Fort Edward received a visit from the Reverend Fritz Reuter of the Berlin Missionary Society, as well as his family. The Reverend, with a famous surname, was not as supportive of the local Boers as other Sotbansburgers. The Reverend warned Captain Hunt that a Boer commander by the name of Feldkornet Barenfeljun was active in the Devil's Kloof, or Devil's Gorge area, and was harassing local farmers for support. 
His own mission station had been threatened, he said. So Captain Hunt duly ordered a detachment under Sergeant ABC Cecil to head off to the mission station. Not long afterwards, a black messenger arrived confirming that the mission station was being threatened by the Boers. But worse news was that Sergeant Cecil's patrol had been ambushed near the Medingen mission station. Captain Hunt then took the steps which would lead to this immense story, one which won't go away. On the 2nd of August 1901, Captain Hunt left Fort Edward with a plan to attack the Falun Commando. Joining him on this mission was Tony Scheel, who was a Boer defector from the Sotbansberg Commando and had joined the Bushveld Carboneers as an intelligence scout. Scheel commanded close to 400 irregulars, including black troops hired from the local Lebedo people. Once again, the premise that blacks were not fighting is shown to be just wrong. This was a battalion-sized group of armed black men fighting for the British. Captain Hunt was in no mood to take advice that day, and unfortunately he would not live to regret his rash decision. Scheel warned against attacking the Falun farmhouse at night, but Hunt was determined. There are a few reports of what transpired that night. One was the diary of Trooper J.S. Silke, who said that Reverend Reuter also warned Hunt against attacking. The Falun farm was built on a rocky hillside and was virtually unassailable. In fact, it had a special staircase hewn out of rock and concrete just to climb to the summit. Worse, the Boerter farm nearby included a small commando of around 40 armed men who could easily cut off Hunt's line of retreat. These men knew this land like the proverbial back of their hands, and the patrol was ill-conceived. It was also a bright moonlit night, and the Boers could see what was going on across the mountaintops. Hunt chose to attack anyway. After planning a two-pronged attack, Captain Hunt ordered Troop Silke to wait for a signal shot and then rush the farmhouse from behind with 50 Lobedu warriors. Then Captain Hunt approached the farmhouse via the concrete steps terraced into the hillside. While the British moved in, the Falun commander knew they were coming, but many were suffering the effects of malaria. Still, they waited at the windows for signs of the attack. Berger Hendrik Jacobs recalled later how he saw Hunt's party through a window and open fire. This led to general pandemonium, with the British soldiers opening fire willy-nilly in turn. And it was in that exchange of fire that Captain Hunt was shot through the chest, and then Sergeant Irland, as well as a Lobedu warrior, were killed trying to go to their commander's aid. Three Boers also died, including Baron Fulyun, his brother J.J. Fulyun, as well as G. Hartzenberg. The dead were left where they lay, both sides retreated. When the surviving members of the patrol returned to Menningen Mission Station, Reverend Reuter asked them about their officers and was told a confusing story about what had happened. Then they discovered all the bodies had been mutilated, both Boer and British. This was the work of Lobedo witch doctors, or Sangomas as they are known, taking bits of the men to use for muti medicine. For Africans, this is nothing new. For Australians like Morant, this made him apoplectic. So it was then that the body of Captain Percy Hunt was buried at the Menigan Mission Station, where a cross was later installed by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Sergeant Elland was buried at his family homestead, the Ravens Hill Farm, after a burial service read by Reverend Reuter. When news of Hunt's death reached Fort Edward, Breaker Morant was inconsolable. A diary entry by Lieutenant Witten of the Carboneers, who is crucial to the story, said he became like a man demented. Morant immediately ordered every available man out on patrol and became emotional while addressing the men and then ordered them to avenge the death of their captain and give no quarter. Significantly, Morant did not see Hunt's body himself, according to Witten. 
Brandt arrived about an hour after his burial. He questioned the men about Hunt's death and convinced that his friend had been murdered and then mutilated in cold blood by the Boers. He again vowed to give no quarter and take no prisoners. Morant told his men that he had not carried out the techno-prisoner's order so far, but this would now change. The retaliation would be immediate. The next day, after leaving a few men to guard the mission, Morant commanded his unit back to the Fulian farm. It had been abandoned, so they tracked the retreating Boers all day, sighting them at dusk. As the Australians closed in, the emotional Morant began shooting too early, and they lost the element of surprise, so most of the Boers escaped. They did, however capture one unfortunate commando member named Fisser, wounded in the ankles. He could not walk. The next morning, as Morant and his men continued their pursuit, a runner brought a message that the likely manned Fort Edward was in danger of being attacked by the Boers, so Morant abandoned the chase. Meanwhile, he turned to the unfortunate Mr. Fisser. The patrol found parts of an old British uniform, and that was the proof that Morant needed that Fisser should be shot as a spy. It was also the start of Morant's descent into savagery. When they stopped to eat at around 11 a.m., Morant told officers he intended to have Fissa shot, quoting orders direct from headquarters and citing Kitchener's recent alleged no prisoners proclamation. That's not what Kitchener had said. It merely implied this in orders. Morant was beside himself and called for a firing party. Some of the men objected. Fissa eventually was made to sit down on an embankment because he was too injured to stand. He was shot there by the firing squad, but was still alive. Morant then ordered Picton to administer the coup de grace with a pistol to shoot him in the head and finish him off. Morant was just getting started. On the 23rd of August, Morant commanded a small patrol to intercept a group of eight prisoners from Fulhoun's commanders who were being brought in. Morant then ordered them to be taken to the side of the road, and they were summarily shot. This shocked all his men, even by the mad rules of this mad war. And the South African-born German missionary, Reverend C.H.D. Hees, was present and spoke to the prisoners before they were summarily executed. He was equally shocked, so much so that he was moved to take action and rode off with his southern Indebele driver towards Petersburg. Morant, it's believed, ordered the Reverend murdered. About a week later, reports began to circulate that Reverend Heese had been found shot along the Petersburg Road about 15 miles from the fort on his way to Petersburg to report the activities of Morant and his group to the British authorities. Not long afterwards, Morant took Hancock and several other men to intercept Boers who were reported nearby. It was the unfortunate Van Staden family. After the Van Staden surrendered with a white flag, they were taken prisoner, disarmed and then shot. This was a particularly wicked act, as Mr. Finstaden was surrendering so that his teenage son could get medical help. The body count was going up, and Morant was notching the numbers somewhere, I'm sure. Lieutenant Morant was apparently a hero, at least in the eyes of his superiors, until a letter arrived at the desk of the British Army officer commanding at Petersburg on 4th October 1901. It was written by Bushville Carbonius Trooper Robert Mitchell Cochrane, who was the former Justice of the Peace from Western Australia. This letter outlined what he said were six disgraceful incidents. Number one, the shooting of six surrendered Afrikaner men and boys and the theft of their money and livestock at Valdesia on July 2, 1901. This led to allegation two, 
Trooper B.J. van Buren of the Bushveld Carboniers had been shot by Lieutenant Peter Hancock in July after he disapproved of the killings at Valdesia. Charge 3, the revenge killing of Fleurus Fisser, a wounded prisoner of war near the Kudus River on 11 August 1901. Charge 4, the shooting ordered by Captain Taylor and Lieutenant Morant of four surrendered Afrikaners and four Dutch schoolteachers who had been captured at the Elm Hospital in Valdesia on the morning of 23 August 1901. Three black witnesses were also shot dead. Can you see how the descent into hell was rapidly accelerating? A kind of Joseph Conrad-type madness had caught hold of Lieutenant Morant. Apocalyptic and terminal. This shooting was linked directly to the murder of Reverend Carl Daniel Heese and his interbelly driver. That was Peter Hancock's handiwork. Charge 5. An order given by Bushville Carboniers Lieutenant Charles Hannam to shoot at a wagon train they knew only contained Afrikaner women and children who were coming to surrender at Fort Edward. The gunfire killed two boys, one five, the other thirteen, and wounded a nine-year-old girl. The sixth charge was the shooting of Rolf von Staden and his sons Rolf Jr. and Christian near Fort Edward on 7th September 1901. This is particularly stark. All were coming in to surrender in the hope of gaining medical treatment for teenage Christian, who was suffering from bouts of malaria. Instead, they were met at the Sweetwaters farm near Fort Edward by a party consisting of Lieutenants Morant and Hancock. The letter outlined how Rolf van Staden and both of his sons were then shot after being forced to dig their own graves. A stark reminder of how evil some men's souls are. There was also a list of civilian witnesses to back up all these claims. The letter accused a field commander of the Bushville Carboniers, Major Robert Lenehan, of being privy to these misdemeanors. Just a quick note about the letter writer, Trooper Cochrane. He was no normal trooper. He had fought in South Africa all the way from Colenso in December 1899 to mid-1901, and as I outlined earlier, he was also a former Australian Justice of the Peace. We cannot return home with the stigma of these crimes attached to our names, he wrote. Therefore, we humbly pray that a full and exhaustive inquiry be made by imperial officers in order that the truth be elicited and justice done. So deeply do we deplore the opprobrium which must be inseparably attached to these crimes that scarcely a man, once his time is up, can be prevailed to re-enlist in this corps. So all Fort Edward officers and NCOs were summoned to Petersburg on 21st of October 1901, including Morant and Hancock. They were met outside the town by a heavily armed unit and brought into Petersburg as criminals. They were charged with various murders, and the first session of the case took place on November 1901 and continued for four weeks. During the case, it emerged that Captain Hunt had misquoted Lord Kitchener concerning the take-no-prisoners order. It didn't exist. In a confidential report to the War Office, Colonel St. Clair wrote, I agree generally with the views expressed by the Court of Inquiry in the opinion of the several cases. The idea that no prisoners were to be taken in the Spelonkin area appears to have been started by the late Captain Hunt and after his death continued by orders given personally by Captain Taylor. The statement that Captain Hunt's body had been maltreated is in no way corroborated and the reprisals undertaken by Lieutenant Morant on this idea were utterly unjustifiable. Lieutenant Hancock was equally to blame, said the court, and had taken part personally in the massacres of Boers. As I explained in episode 72, one of the more damaging facts which emerged from this terrible series of events is that a reign of terror had been imposed within the Bushville Carboniers themselves. The men were terrified of their officers, terrified of being shot. 
The court martial of Morant and his co-accused began on 16 January 1902. The two main hearings were conducted in Petersburg itself. One concerned the shooting of Fisser, the other the Eight Boers case. A number of damning depositions were made, one by Trooper Thompson stating that on the morning of 23rd of August 1901, he saw a party of soldiers with eight Boers. Morant gave orders and the prisoners were taken to the road and shot, Hancock killing two with his revolver. Morant later told me that we had to play into his hands or else they would know what to expect. He was now threatening his own men, a Captain Kurtz indeed. Then another Bushfeld carbineer, Corporal Sharp, told the military court that he would walk 100 miles barefoot to serve in a firing squad to shoot Morant and Hancock. These are not normal depositions, even in a time of war. Morant and Hancock were put in irons and taken to Pretoria while heavily guarded and tried on the third main count, that of the killing of Reverend Heath. They were found not guilty for want of evidence, but were sentenced to death on the other charges. Kitchener was approached before the day of execution, but he refused to discuss a pardon. The war office had already agreed to their termination with extreme prejudice. That night, Morant, Picton, Hancock and Witten had a last supper together at Morant's request, and he and Hancock were allowed to spend their last night in the same cell. Morant spent most of the night writing and then penned a final sardonic verse and a confession which read, To the Rev. Cannon Fisher, Pretoria, the night before we shot, we shot the Boers who killed and mutilated our friend, the best mate I had on earth, Harry Harbord Morant, Peter Joseph Hancock. Morant could still not believe that the mutilation was a traditional leader's cut. He continued to blame the Boers instead of the Labedu Shangomas. Shortly before 0600 hours, Morant and Hancock were led out of the fort in Pretoria to be executed by a firing squad from the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders. Both men refused to be blindfolded. Morant gave his cigarette case to the squad leader. His last words were reported as, Shoot straight, you bastards. Don't make a mess of it. Or something along those lines. British military censorship then prevented reports of the trial and execution from appearing in Australia until the end of March 1902. That means Lieutenant Hancock's wife and three children, who lived in the town of Bathurst, only learned of Hancock and Morant's deaths from the Australian news media many weeks after their executions. Well, things were not over by a long chalk. The newly federated Australian government demanded an explanation from Lord Kitchener about the execution in 1902. In a letter in reply, he said, Morant and Hancock were charged with 20 separate murders, including one of a German missionary who had witnessed other murders. Twelve of these murders were proved. From the evidence, it appears that Morant was the originator of these crimes which Hancock carried out in cold-blooded manner. But he had agreed to commute the death sentence for another of the charged, Lieutenant Witten, who was also convicted but I commuted the sentence to penal servitude for life in consideration of his having been under the influence of Morant and Hancock. The proceedings have been sent home. The executions made news in the UK and the summary of the trial was published by the Times in 1902. George Witten was eventually released after serving only 28 months of his life sentence, and then he wrote a book called Scapegoats of Empire. It's been reprinted a few times. But in 1981, when historians attempted to get hold of the transcripts of the trial, they were told all transcripts dating between 1850 and 1914 had been destroyed. The repercussions continued. For example, the Australian government was so resentful of the case 
that it insisted that none of its troops would be tried by the British military during World War I. And the official record of Moran's court-martial has vanished. Still, it's incredible the pure volume of material published around Breaker Morant, even to this day. There's a fantastic book by Arthur Davy called Breaker Morant and the Bushville Carboneers, published 1987. Then, during 2012, South African historian Charles Leach published the book The Legend of Breaker Morant is Dead and Buried, a South African version of the Bushville Carboneers in the Sertmansburg, May 1901, April 1902. The graves of Morant and Hancock were left unattended for many years, but after the release of David Beresford's movie Breaker Morant in 1980, it became a popular place of pilgrimage for Australian tourists. During June 1998, the Australian government spent 1,500 US dollars refurbishing the gravesite with a new concrete slab. In 2002, a group of Australians travelled to South Africa and held a service at the Pretoria gravesite to commemorate the execution on the morning of its 100th anniversary. The service was also attended by the Australian High Commissioner to South Africa. Then in 2010, a petition to pardon Morant and Hancock was sent to Queen Elizabeth II. This was opposed by South Africa, specifically the descendants of the Fulhuin brothers who were killed in the skirmish with Hunt and Hillant, and by the descendants of the family of Reverend Heese. During November 2010, the British Ministry of Defence stated that the appeal had been rejected. Australia's official position now is that the men did commit the killings for which they were convicted and that a pardon would not be sought. But nationalists in Australia used the Brakamaran story as propaganda ammunition. And as with all things that are symbolic, this tale continues. In 2016, an old Hessian mailbag was found in Tenterfield, New South Wales, Australia. In what can only be called an extraordinary coincidence, included in the bag were goods believed to have belonged to Morant. Although the provenance is obscure, it's believed that the bag had originally come from the former home of James Thomas, the Tenterfield solicitor who defended Morant and his colleagues at their court-martial. It had been lying where it was tossed when Thomas died in the early 1940s. The items found included a number of personal effects engraved with Morant's name and all his initials, including a penny on a leather thong which had his full name and a roughly circular nick on the edge. Although it cannot be confirmed, it's speculated that Morant was wearing the penny as an early form of dog tag at the moment he was shot and that the nick was caused by the passage of one of the bullets that killed him. Romantic, but possible. Other Morant effects contained in the bag included fragments of a trumpet, a bayonet scabbard, a bandolier believed to be one of Morant Warner's famous photo portrait, a cigarette case thought to be the one Morant gave to Thomas before he was shot, as well as brass drinking cups engraved with the initials HM, Army Field Mess Equipment, and a Boer War Medal. The cache also included an Australian red ensign, which is thought to be the same flag that is seen draping Morant and Hancock's grave in an early photograph. The ensign had been signed by Thomas in ink on one of the white stars and has the following inscription. This flag bore witness to utter scapegoats of the empire February 27, 1902, Pretoria, signed J.F. Thomas. Hancock, February 17, 1868 to February 27, 1902, R.I.P. Lieutenant Henry H. Morant, December 9, 1864, February 27, 1902, Pretoria, RIP. The anonymous finder of this bag, known as Mr. Collector, subsequently donated the items to Tenterfield's Henry Park School of Arts Museum, where they are now on public display. So we've come to the end of this week's special edition. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. 
If you have any suggestions or comments, please send these to me on Twitter at Des Latham or through our website abvorpodcast.com. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs>